0: Welcome to Dream Gardens, where we talk up the children's books we love. My name is Jody Lima, and on this twice-monthly podcast, posted on the first and third Monday of each month, I interview other kids' books enthusiasts about their own favorite children's books. Today, I'm going to be interviewing Trisha Springstub. Uh, she's author of the recent middle-grade novel, The Most Perfect Thing in the Universe, and we're going to be talking about that, as well as her favorite children's book, Half Magic by Edward Eager. But before that, I want to give a little heads up about what I'm going to be doing with the podcast over the next couple of months. Of course, I'm going to continue to talk to writers about their own writing and their favorite kids' books. Uh, That is not going to change. But I'm going to be doing some other different things as well. For example, on my next podcast, the one on July 5th, Along with a regular interview, I'm going to include a brief talk I had with Shane Garver, who's Associate Vice President of Rural Education Programs at Save the Children, and we're going to be talking about the summer reading program in rural communities that's being done in conjunction with Scholastic. Uh, If you listened to my last podcast, you'll remember I spoke... With uh, Lizette Serrano, uh, who's vice president of educational marketing at Scholastic, and there we talked about Scholastic Summer Reading Program. Uh, so the one on July fifth will be an expansion about that general idea. So please listen for that. Now, in the three podcasts following the one on July fifth, namely the ones on July nineteenth, August second, and August sixteenth, I'm going to be doing something I haven't done a whole lot of on this podcast which is basically to promote my own stuff, specifically my debut novel, a middle-grade novel called Hushabye, which is coming out on August 24th. Uh, What I have in mind for those three podcasts is I'm going to be reading the first six chapters of my book, two chapters per podcast. Now, I'm still going to be interviewing other authors about their favorite children's books, But following each interview, I'm going to talk a little bit about my book and then read a couple of chapters. I am putting the reading after the interviews, because if you want to listen to the interviews and that's all, you don't have to fast forward through me to get to them. But I do hope you stick around to listen, and I hope you like what you hear. That is if you like spooky stuff. My guest today is Tricia Springstub, author of such books as the Cody Chapter Book series, What Happened on Fox Street, Every Single Second, and the picture book Khalil and Mr. Haggerty in the Backyard Treasures. Her latest book is the middle grade novel The Most Perfect Thing in the Universe. You can find her website at trishaspringstub.com. Thank you for joining me today, Tricia.
1: Oh, thanks so much for having me, Jody. It's a pleasure.
0: (laughs) Now, as I mentioned, your your latest book, this middle grade novel, is called The Most Perfect Thing in the Universe. And this is just um, uh, recently published. Uh, Can you talk a little bit of uh, what this book is about? Well, thanks for
1: mentioning my other books. I do write picture books and chapter books as well. Um, But I feel as if my natural writing voice is middle grade. You know, kids about 9 to 13, I think of it as for me in my life and for my own children growing up, it was kind of the golden age of reading. And, you know, kids that age are really starting to think for themselves, to have their own ideas and to want to assert independence. And yet they still crave the comfort and security of home and family. So I find it's a really rich and a tender place to write from. And that's really uh, my new book, The most perfect thing in the universe is really about that. That one of the themes kind of is that very tweeny spot between, you know, staying in the nest and getting your wings and flying. And the title um, was a gift that I got when I was doing research. The book has a lot in it about birds. And I came across this quote I think that if required on pain of death to name instantly the most perfect thing in the universe, I should risk my fate on a bird's egg. And that was from Thomas Wentworth Higginson. He was a botanist and um, a naturalist who lived in the 1800s. And I, I just think that's just a perfect metaphor. The egg is such a wonderful uh, symbol and metaphor for growing up. You know, an egg has to be sturdy enough to protect that growing chick and porous enough to let the air and the light in without being too fragile. Um, it has to withstand, uh, you know, weeks and of the chick growing inside it. Um, but in the end, you know, its job is to to crack and open and make way for the new little being inside who hatches into the the big world. And that's really the story of Loa, my main character. She's a quiet timid, homebody. She has a mother who's a noted ornithologist and who goes and is pretty fearless. She goes off on expeditions to try to help and and rescue endangered species of birds, especially in the Arctic tundra. And she's on one such expedition when um, a number of things go wrong. And meanwhile, Loa is home pretty much alone. Um, Her caretakers have grown ill And she's alone in her old somewhat spooky house with no one to help her, but a new friend who's got some big problems of her own. So it's a story about finding, you know, what, and that was really the reason I wrote it. Like if you were somebody who was kind of shy and homebody and timid and was not given to adventures and then life handed them to you, you know, what would you do? Would you find, you know, the hidden resources that you didn't know you had? Would you discover things about yourself, strengths that you didn't know were there? Um, would you turn and to others to, um, for support? And Loa does all of those things over the course of the novel. So I think of it as a story about, um, you know, growing up and finding even, even a very very quiet, unassuming person taking her place in the world.
0: I'm. I'm curious. You mentioned that uh, the the title from this, uh, the most perfect in the universe, came from this quote as you're researching. So I'm wondering in the in this process of researching, did the did you have the idea for the story first, and did the research, or did, were you doing research in general? Uh, an idea you wanted to do something uh, related to orthonology and the story sprung from that. So <laughs> I guess it's sort of a chicken, <laughs> kind of a chicken and the egg uh, yeah, sort of question. It's very
1: hard. You know, I am a fairly reluctant researcher. <laughs> Um, I'm a fiction writer and I really prefer to make stuff up. And even if I know I need to know something, I kind of like try to muddle my way through if I can. But with this story, um, it really demanded that I learn much more about science um, because her mother is an ornithologist who especially works with species that are in the Arctic tundra. I think we all know that, you know, climate change is happening at twice the rate of the rest of the world in the Arctic. Um, So it's a very urgent mission that her mother is on. And I had to find, I really needed to educate myself a lot more about that. And I, you know, I said, st- I actually started out thinking of the tundra as this sort of desolate, um, you know, waste, icy wasteland and came to find out that it's, you know, an amazingly beautiful and rich biome. And also ber- uh, birds, just birds. I've always written birds into my books. I just, there's such All my books have birds as symbols of, you know, hope, um, um, possibility. And, but in this book, I really wanted to make the birds, give them a sort of, you know, starring role. So I, I had, I learned a lot about birds, everything from the Arctic tern, you know, which, um, it, it does the longest migration of any animal, um, on the planet every year. It flies from pole to pole and back, learning about the birds like that down to, you know, the little backyard sparrows that never stir far from their nests. And, and the whole idea of the egg that did come, I can't really remember which came first. <laughs> the quote or um, Loa does play a game called egg where she, she pretends that she's very safe and she hasn't come out of her egg yet. She's a little chick that's waiting to hatch in its nest. But of course, what happens with chicks and with children is eventually... They grow too large to stay in that egg. They need to stretch and to spread their wings and, and go out. So, yeah, it, like I said, research is something that I'm always a little reluctant to do. And yet, I, in the end, it's always amazingly rewarding for me because I, there's so much in the real natural world that um, feeds into my, into my work.
0: And I think, too, you're talking about uh, kids at this age, you know, they're sort of um, growing, developing, trying to be independent, at the same time, you know, yeah. wanting to stay safe in some ways. And they're also, I'm thinking uh, in terms of the, you know, the the sort of the research and the subject matter, they're also very curious about yes. things. And so having a book not just about a journey, but about, you know, learning about, um, ortho- you know, and birds and, you know, the mm-hmm. Arctic tundra is also mm-hmm. an aspect of the novel that would be very attractive for a middle Grade reader who wants to learn about new things too.
1: Yes. And I, one of the things that's been really um, one of the upsides, I think, of the pandemic is um, how many people have developed an interest in birds. There's so many people that have become bird watchers, amateur bird watchers. And if you go online, um, they're just, it just, bursting with beautiful pictures that people have taken um of birds and so i've loved seeing that and between the pandemic and my own interest in this book um i've uh, again yeah i've become a lot more observant of birds and there are tons of resources online and i there's a actually there's um, an afterward and there's a bibliography for kids who do want to learn more about birds and also of course trying to you know conserve species and um help help the planet combat climate change so yeah i i do hope the book has of course i hope it's a wonderful story um but i, I hope it has some resonance in those ways too
0: certainly the, the story is what draws them in but you hope there are other things that maybe so even being done with a novel that'll expand and help them to look into other avenues other areas as well i hope so yeah can you share part of the book with us
1: oh yes yes Yeah. And one other thing on that, like um, uh, talking about which came first, the chicken or the egg, you know, Loa's mother is a a scientist and she she has talked a lot to Loa about the interdependence of all living creatures on the planet. You know, how easily losing one species or one biome just disrupts, you know, so many other things, the ripples go out so far. And Loa, who is this kind of Quiet person who doesn't have a lot of friends herself she um, over the course of the novel she understands that she too is um, interdependent um, and she reaches out to help she makes a new friend by helping the friend and the friend in turn um, and the friend's family help her um, so that's another like little echo of how you know this sort of tender but fierce support system of all the animals and also in personally that, that we all depend on an experience. So yeah, that's just another little <laughs> um, So it, I thought I would just read two really short passages. And the first one is, you know, I said that Loa has been left on her own. Her caretakers are the Rinkers, Theo and Miss Rinker. Um, and they have fallen ill there in the hospital. And so Loa finds herself alone in her, and her mother's on her expedition, alone in her home. And so here's just a little bit about how that feels Loa pulled the covers up, the wind blew, the walls creaked, the windows rattled. As the hours went by and Miss Rinker did not return, she grew more and more anxious. Through her window, though her window was shut, she heard, undaunted by the storm, the shivery call of a screech owl. This bird is only nine inches tall, with sweet little tufts that almost look like ears. If you saw it in the light of day, it might remind you of a kitten. Yet few things are more blood-chilling than its long, tremulous wail. If you've ever watched a horror movie or gone to a Halloween-haunted house, you'd recognize that ghostly sound. A lullaby, her mother called it. Every night of her life, Loa had slept with the rinkers upstairs. They'd watched over her like beaky, scraggy storks. Tonight, she lay in bed, covers to her chin, with no one between her and the endless dark sky. And much, much later in the book, um, almost the end, we can see how Loa has changed. And um, again, she's in in bed and listening to the birds outside her window. The mockingbird sang, Loa closed her eyes. Mama had to be mama and Loa had to be Loa, only not exactly the Loa she used to be. Mama would go away, and she would stay home, and that would never be easy. But it would be different now. Loa drew a breath and felt it fill her. She stretched her legs and knew they'd grown. Always, always, she would want Mama to come home. But it would be a different kind of wanting, not the helpless kind, because Loa wasn't helpless, not anymore. Opening her eyes for a moment, she saw a single moonbeam, white as a snow goose feather, tumble over the lovely dark wall of trees. The world was big, and the world was small, and that was the mystery of it. The mystery and the wonder, and the mockingbird sang Loa off to sleep.
0: What's well, kind of neat in both passages how you parallel the the bird song to her particular state of mind. Yeah, uh, that's kind. Of, I know that's a very deliberate thing uh, th- that you're doing, but uh, I imagine as writing or, or or baby maybe sort of going back and sort of thinking through the book that, to keep um, you know that idea sort of as a through line uh, mm-hmm. throughout the mm-hmm. book.
1: Yes, yes, and I. It's interesting that you say that too because. Um, I'm a big reviser. <laughs> I mean, I write and I write and I write and then I write and I write and I write. I, all my books are revised, you know, multiple times. So, yeah, finding those threads that maybe the first draft you didn't notice were in there and saying, aha, <laughs> and pulling them out and highlighting them. That's I love I really love revising. It's that's one of the pleasures of it, finding the things that you didn't know you had woven into the story. And now that you can really um, make them shine.
0: Uh, another uh, question I was just curious about, I know you said uh, the middle grade is something you, you, you know that it comes very uh, naturally to, but you've written a couple of pictured books. I'm just curious, those moments when you've written picture books, did you find, despite uh, the length of picture book being shorter, did you find sort of switching to that um, very different sort of writing to be uh, a challenge? Because it is writing a picture book is a very different thing from writing a middle grade book.
1: Yeah, I, th- uh, you know, I think people do think that picture books are easy <laughs> because they're only a couple hundred words. But I've written, you know, me- I've written, um, at this point, I've written like I think six or seven novels, and I've written exactly two picture books. <laughs> I mean, they're very, they're very, de- it's a very demanding form. It's very close to poetry. And so, yes, I have uh, to to have them be, you know, succinct and have that arc as tight as it needs to be Um, it's very it's very challenging to me i I, i'm a kind of a blabbermouth writer (laughs) i love to go off on little side roads so yeah but when when it does happen um it's so wonderful um and especially that collaboration with the illustrator because you're writing with a view to this is a very this is going to be a visual this is a visual piece of, of Uh, work that I'm creating here. And you're always writing with the idea of how will this translate into an image, you know? And so, and so you have that idea and then you send it to your editor and then, you know, they find the illustrator and then time goes by and then you see how the illustrator has interpreted your words. And it's um, for me, both times it's just been thrilling because I've been really lucky to have wonderful genius illustrators. Uh, So yeah, so it's very, it's, it's very different. And, um, and I find it much harder to write a picture book. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but also, like I said, the the whole is greater than some of its parts. (laughs) The the interplay of the image and the text is just a sort of, you know, sublime thing.
0: Now, the, the book you picked um, as one of your own particular fa- uh, favorite books is actually a, a middle grade book itself. It's called uh, Half Magic, and it was written by Edward Eager, uh, and this was published uh, in 1954. For readers who are unfamiliar with it, and I have to admit, um, I hadn't read this book before until you suggested it, and then I uh, did read it. Can, for those uh, people like previously myself, can you talk a little bit of what this book is about? yeah
1: it's um well it's a book that I didn't read as a kid myself um I discovered it when my own children were you know in that golden age of reading and we still read out loud every night and somehow I don't remember how I stumbled on this book and um we all just loved it <laughs> and so it's about four kids there's uh, four siblings there's three sisters and one brother. And it's a, they have, their mother's widowed. Um, She works very hard at the local newspaper and it's the beginning of summer and they love summer, but they don't have much to look forward to. They, they're, they have a very cranky housekeeper that takes care of them (laughs) and they don't have a, you know, prospect of a vacation or anything, but so they're just, you know, kind of moseying along wondering what is, you know, what is summer going to bring? And Jane, who's one of the oldest uh, sibling, happens to find um, a coin um, lying on the sidewalk. And at first she thinks it's a nickel or something. And then she looks more closely and she sees, no, this has got some kind of, you know, mysterious writing on it. What can this be? It must be from another country or something. She tucks it in her pocket and doesn't really think anything more about it. But then, and I will read you a tiny passage from it. So here are the four siblings. Jane has the coin in her pocket, um, and they're all just kind of hot and nothing going on. They sat there and couldn't think of anything exciting to do, and nothing went on happening. And it was then that Jane was so disgusted that she said right out loud, she wished there'd be a fire. The other three looked shocked at hearing such wickedness, and then they looked more shocked at what they heard next. What they heard next was a fire siren. Fire trucks started tearing past. The engine puffing out smoke the way it used to do in those days. The the chief's car, the hook and ladder, the chemicals. Mark and Catherine and Martha looked at Jane, and Jane looked back at them with wild wonder in her eyes, and then they started running. (laughs) So what they're going to figure out, they have to figure out what, how is this, you know, how is this wish coming true? And they discover that it's only really halfway come true because it's just a little dollhouse that's on fire, not a really big, not a real house. And so slowly they, they work out the fact that they've discovered a coin that gives you your wish, but it only gives you half your wish. (laughs) So... For instance they this was one of our favorite parts. They wish that their cat could talk, and the cat starts talking, but in a sort of a gibberish <laughs> half human half who knows cat language, so they have to under they, so what's really it's like a, a mischievous magic um that it tests them and they have to figure out how to control it and as you know kids will do, they start making you know some pretty amazing wishes they tra- time travel. And they, they learn kind of the consequences of having this powerful magic, they have to learn how to control it. And they have to learn, sort of by extension that, you know, when they make a wish, um, it's going to have consequences, and ha- things maybe are going to go wrong, and they're going to have to figure that out, too. So I love the idea that, you know, you know, when your kids, at a, to a certain age, every, you know, they believe in magic, um, and then they start to sort of understand that, well, maybe magic is, you know, pretend, but of course, they still wish that there could be such a thing as magic. So this idea that you could just be walking down your plain old sidewalk one day, um, and that magic would kind of fall you know, into your pocket. It's just so much fun. And it's kind you know, childhood is still kind of, who knows what's going to happen? You know, all the possibilities are still out there. So it plays off of of that too. And I think it's just a brilliant book and hilarious. The final scenes when they, um, they've they used the magic um, and they have actually, well, I'm not going to tell what happens, but they ha- they really don't need the coin anymore because by the end they have pretty much their heart's desire so but they decide to leave the coin for another child um, to find with pretty hilarious consequences um, but they instead of keeping it and wishing that maybe they'll get some magic they know it's time to pass it to pass it on to another child that, that could use it so they've they've grown so much over the course of having this coin they've become much wiser and happier and maybe more generous children so. It's just a lovely, a lovely circle.
0: Yeah, it's sort of almost a, a takeoff on the, the old saying, be careful what you wish for. Yeah. And it's interesting. They do. You say at first they don't know what's going on. They learn the rules. But even after they learn the rules, they still manage to get into a, a bit of trouble <laughs> as well. And and part of it is because of their particular relationship with each other. I mean, they do a lot of things together. They're very close, but not to say that they're always everything is fine and dandy with them all the time. There's still a, a bit of tension between them just because of difference in personality.
1: Yeah, there's that sibling rivalry and jockeying for who's going to be in control. And yeah, and getting angry at one another when they make mistake. It's it's a, a sort of a classic sweet story. But it's very, like you're saying it has, um, it's not like saccharine, it's got real realistic elements to it, too.
0: I was wondering, was there one child in particular that you identified with when you read the book? As I said, this reminds me of either myself or someone I know, or or I just really like this person.
1: Well, you know, Jane is the oldest, and I'm the oldest of my siblings. And so she's a little bit bossy. (laughs) I'm afraid maybe I was too. But she's also a very, you know, a very thoughtful child. And I thought one of the lovely things that um, Eager does in the book is the children, their father has died, and their mother is possibly, there's a stepfather possibly hovering on the edges of the story. And Jane is the one who remembers her father, um, and feels the, the conflicted about, you know, him being replaced. And I thought that was a, a really, a really nuanced, it could, this could have just been a romp, you know, this book, but Eger gave that emotional nuance and shading there. And he gave it to to Jane and, um, she does get one last little wish out of the coin. The coin is used up, but it's, it sort of decides to come back and give Jane one last wish when she's thinking of her father. And I, I just thought uh, that that was like a, that was a lovely, lovely thing for him to, to acknowledge, you know, that with children, you know, going forward, it's exciting, but you know, you're always kind of leaving something else behind. So it's a little bit sad too. I thought that was really nice
0: but well, she does have that kind of interesting wish which i think a lot of children have which is uh, i wish i was in somebody else's uh family yeah. and it, and of course it was just nice to show that sometimes that doesn't always go <laughs> <Once> you think <laughs> it well
1: yes that was great and she feels her her jainness is still buried inside of her trying to get out um so that i liked i loved that he did that too
0: It's interesting. There's a certain uh, I mean, they they go through a lot of adventures and some things are more, I guess, uh, tense than other things. But there's always a certain breeziness in tone. There's never they get a lot of mischief, but you never feel that there's, you know, terrible, you know, real danger going on. So he always keeps the tone. Um, yes. very light. And I did some, what is it about what the, uh, the, um, the author, what Edward eager does that helps, what do you think that sets that tone and what other authors could learn from that?
1: Yeah, I, I, um, it's interesting too that you say that because the voice in it is, it, I actually in the most perfect thing in the universe, I went for a somewhat, I mean, I could never write like Edward eager, but a, a somewhat similar voice where a uh, mind's not omniscient like his is, but, um, you know, there's a there's a narrator who every once in a while will will just comment, you know, um, and draw the re- sort of address the reader or or you know in, just intrude a little bit, but in a always in a a sort of empathetic, you know, the kids always on the side of the kids, and oh, and and somewhat wry and and amused, and I think he does that the part. Uh, I hate to give away some of the parts, but they do go to Camelot and there is some carnage when there's a big duel among these, um, a joust among these knights. Um, and so what could be like, oh my gosh, you know, these knights are dismembered. He just kind of says, you know, it was, it, the children were quite, you know, enthralled to watch how the knight, the pieces of the knights were put back together. So yeah, it's the la- it's the language. And it's that, yeah, I think what you say, that light, somewhat breezy tone. He's always, he's, no matter what he's observing, there's always a, a slightly, um, a small smile on his face, I think. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. And it is wonderful language. I would read it, you know, for the verbs and the descriptions. Um, if you're an aspiring writer, he's he is very deft with the language yeah. and he doesn't waste words.
0: I'm wondering, uh, after reading, uh, uh, when did you first encounter this book, uh, by the way? I just said you didn't read it as a child. You came across it uh, later on?
1: Yes, I came, well, probably it would have been like in the late 80s when that's when my, now you know how old I am, that's when my kids were, you know, getting into those. I I would read chapter books aloud to them in Mm the evening. So, yeah, we discovered this one. And probably it's a good time to bring up, too, that um, when I recommended reading it, I hadn't reread it since then, and so I was kind of, I was a little saddened to realize that there is some, you know, some racism in it. Um, There's a section when they go to the desert and um, they meet Ahmed, the Arab, and he's not depicted um, well, and that I actually had not picked up on that or registered it. I mean, when I recommend the book, I was not... I, had, I hadn't noticed that, or I didn't remember that that had been in there. So that was very um, eye opening to me to realize <laughs> that I had read this with my kids, and I don't remember us ever remarking on that depiction, which is really too bad. Um, and so, what I would would say is you know to families that maybe are going to read it now um that when you get to that section it's very it's a very small part of the book but still it's a pretty um disturbing depiction of um you know it's it's racist so that you might want to take that as a point to stop and really talk to with your your kids about well what do you think is happening here and yeah let's let's talk about this
0: yeah I, I did notice that myself in mm-hmm. reading the book yeah. and it it is it is a little because uh, it because the tone is so lightened to read that it's a little jarring uh yes, to come across that yes.
1: and he does depict it in a sort of a jaunty way, but um we can't overlook that there really is definite you know prejudice in how he's depicting that character, so it could be you know a really i think i would not Wanted, you know, say don't read the book because of that, but I think it's definitely a point to stop and to to connect with your kids and talk about it when you reach that section.
0: I think that's probably true for um, a lot of books, both older books and sometimes even um, uh, more, more recent books. It's always good for parents to always good for parents to read books first, they read yes. and, and then you know, and then having a discussion about that. I think is always of of great value for them. Um, I, I'm curious, um, you said, since this book is so much about wishes. Uh, after reading this book, uh, did you give any thought about uh, what you might wish for, or just the, the idea of wishing? sound less appealing after um, <laughs> after reading something like this, and it never seems to quite work out. Right.
1: Uh, I think it's just human to wish. You know, I think we'll always, no matter how old we are, no matter what, probably have some wishes in us. But I, you know, I don't really, I, there's not that much. I, I, I feel like in my life I'm very, very lucky, and I pretty much have had my heart's, desire, just like, um, the children in this book, but build, um, I get to work, do work that I really love. I get to have a voice for kids. So I don't, I don't really wish for much more than that. I wish that people will read my books (laughs) for sure.
0: Well, Tricia, uh thank you so much for for talking to me both about um your own book The Most Perfect Thing in the Universe and the uh, the sort of the process that you went through in and researching that and thank you for uh talking to me about the book Half Magic. And um and hopefully all all the wishes you asked for all come true as well.
1: Oh, well, same to you, Jody. (laughs) Thank you so much for doing this, and thanks for um, spreading the love of reading to kids and to the grown-ups who nurture them. Thank you so much for doing that.
0: You can find Trisha's website at trishaspringstub.com. Thank you for joining me on Dream Gardens. The theme music titled All Together is provided courtesy of Purple Planet Music. You can visit them at www.purpleplanet.com podcast cover art was created through canva which can be found at www.canva.com you can find the dream gardens podcast website at jleemott.com and my author website at jodylemott.com you can also follow me on twitter at DreamGardensJLM. jlm the dream gardens podcast is available through itunes stitcher spotify or wherever you get your podcasts if you like what you hear please comment share or subscribe And until next time, keep dreaming, keep growing, and keep reading.